Welcome back to another season of the Lead with Data podcast. In this exciting new season, we'll be focusing on engaging with leaders in the healthcare and medical sector who are at the forefront of leveraging data. It's evident that this industry has been underserved when it comes to effectively utilizing data, facing challenges with data privacy, data sharing. However, these challenges also present numerous opportunities for the sector to harness the power of data and drive decision-making and research. I'm thrilled to announce that I'll also be joined by my co-owner, Tracy Rowe, who'll be joining me to interview some of these incredible guests. Together, we're eagerly looking forward to discovering, learning, and gaining a deeper understanding of the impacts that data analytics can have in this industry. Stay tuned for some enlightening conversations that will shed light on the potential transformation brought about by data-driven practices in the healthcare and medical sector. Today on the show, we have the pleasure of welcoming Wendy Chapman. Wendy is the Director of the Centre for Digital Transformation of Health at the University of Melbourne. With a wealth of experience and expertise in her field, Wendy has been elected as a Fellow of American College of Medical Informatics and US National Academy of Medicine. She's also a valued board member of the Australian Institute of Digital Health. Wendy's research revolves around harnessing the power of data and digital technology to revolutionise the delivery of healthcare. She has dedicated two decades of her career into the development and evaluation of natural language processing algorithms. Wendy has also been instrumental in spearheading numerous interdisciplinary initiatives focused on the advancement of research, education and practical implementation within the realm of digital health. I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. Thank you so much, Wendy, for joining me on the show today. Thank you for the invitation. Look, I wanted to start off by obviously um, just giving the listeners a bit of a background of yourself. So do you want to um, give us a brief overview of your sort of career today and what you're doing right now? Sure. I direct the Center for Digital Transformation at the University of Melbourne. I'm also the Associate Dean for Digital Health and Innovation. And these are new roles at the university in an area that they knew was important, but they had underinvested in in the past. So it's been an exciting time to an opportunity to really build out something um, in a place where there hasn't been much action. My background, I have a bachelor's degree in linguistics uh, from the US, the University, University of Utah. I got my PhD in biomedical informatics from the same place. And then from there, I did research in natural language processing of clinical notes. I worked at University of Pittsburgh, University of California, San Diego, went back to the University of Utah to be the chair of the department I graduated from, and then came here for this job. Excellent. So I guess that, and just probably like me, a lot of individuals will probably be trying to understand the role that the university plays when it comes to, you know, informatics and and health data. Can you maybe just give us a bit of an idea of the role that I suppose the function plays, but then also what your role is. Yes. I think that there's a big gap between what's done at a university and what's needed by a healthcare system. And that gap is really felt on both sides. And so on the university side, we want to develop new methods and, uh, uh, you know, novel techniques and demonstrate evidence that they work on the hospital or clinical side. There's a lot of needs for computing and technology and data but a lot of them, they're so far behind in many ways that they it's hard to attract university partners because you're not going to be able to develop your new algorithm, for example. You need to do a lot of baseline setting up infrastructure, 
um, you know, connecting data, figuring out how to implement things in practice. And these things are, are seem not to be of interest to highfalutin researchers. But in reality, there is a type of research, action research or translation or research where people are interested in these applied questions and they are research questions about how we do the, these things in the best way. And that's where informatics comes in. You know, there is a science behind and methodologies behind how to really collect data and, and manage it and model it and link it. There's a science behind how to implement new innovations into healthcare, how to generate new models for new funding models to support the new innovations that right now are not supported in, in our environment. And so I think there's that opportunity for the university to be a partner. Excellent. So from, I suppose, the role that you play when you're sort of working with these organizations. So if you came up with these um, technologies and innovations and models, would you then work with the healthcare providers um, or hospitals um, or the industries or, or the organizations that it would be applicable to and explain to them what it can do and then help them sort of implement those solutions? Is that kind of the role that you play? Yeah, that's the hard part is how do you build that partnership? Sometimes it comes from the hospital or the, um, you know, the clinical partner who has a need and they come and try to find the expertise to support them. And we write grants together and go down that pathway. Other times it's somebody with a hammer going and looking for a nail. And so I say, I have this cool natural language processing tool and I think it would help you. (laughs) How could we apply it? And I think, you know, that that's the way things are working typically. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit hit and miss. And I think what we need in the future is just more targeted, prioritized partnerships where we are committing to work together. Yeah. Now we're co-designing the things that we work on. So, for example, there's a, a program at, at New York University Langone called Future Practice. Mm-hmm. And they are embedded in the hospital as a hospital program, but they're academics that are embedded. And so they have an informaticist and a biostatistician and, you know, a variety of different methodological experts. But what they do is they work with the health system on problems that are hard to solve. So they're not picking the low hanging fruit. They're picking the things that the, that the the health service is not going to do on their own Mm -hmm. because it's not clear how to go forward on it. And there needs to be innovation and evaluation and, you know, testing and experimenting. So they pick those hard problems together and then they work on them and they demonstrate what could be done. And, and it's, it's this partnership. Yeah. And I think that's where we need to be headed in, in Australia is more of those, in those partnerships. And, and it's key that those researchers, and maybe you don't want to call them researchers because health services are averse to the word research, but it also has, it, you know, it implies just doing things to get papers, but yeah. it, it also, but, but that learning, you know, how do we learn and how do we innovate? Yeah. And so building, you have to be embedded in the health service so that you are really there seeing firsthand what the problems are, because it's only when you see them firsthand that you know how to solve them. And and, and I was trained in a place where that would happen. Wow. Uh, I trained at the University of Utah and LDS Hospital was our main testing ground and, and laboratory. And they installed their first electronic medical record in the late 1950s. Yeah, wow. And they installed it to collect data to do decision support, to support clinicians at the point of care. And so for the last 60 years, 
they've been working on that and people are embedded in the ICU or the emergency room. They're part of the team and they're building out these informatics and digital health solutions together. Yeah, great. Now, I suppose let's just take a little bit of a step back and and maybe talk about some of the challenges that at the moment that you believe the healthcare and medical system sort of has when it comes to data. Okay, I think everyone knows that data can be really powerful and that we need data to guide um, practice change and to provide insight about what's going on. We're collecting all this data and we need to learn from it so that we improve the way that we deliver care and we improve people's health. But how do you do it? That's much more challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think there are many barriers. Of course, there's the privacy issue of, you know, do do patients really want their data to be shared yeah. or research or, or to be linked with other data sets? I do believe I was surprised coming here at the uh, antagonism towards data sharing that I felt like was different than in the U.S. Okay. Um, I think in the US, there's a general sentiment that as long as you're doing it in the right way and protecting the privacy, that it's important. And yeah. the majority believe that. Um, and the government, I think, has, you know, it's probably just being a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> but we went through those discussions 20 years ago, and now there's a lot more data access and data sharing now. Still, okay, so that's one aspect of the, the public's view yeah. of it. And and it's really valid that we don't, you know, do you, that there are data breaches there are people accessing data that shouldn't be. People sell their data. You know, all these things need to be addressed in the right way and de-identification. But there are techniques to address those. The second barrier, though, is the health systems themselves and the health, the health services, that they often see data as power and money. Mm-hmm. And so they don't want to share it. Um, and the third thing, then, is just the fear that government has. And in particular, that's important here of, you know, being in the news for a data breach. And so I think they're there. So it's mainly political. I don't yeah. think it's technical. There are all kinds of ways to share data. There's federated ways, there's central ways, yeah. there's ways to link data. There's all kinds of algorithms for de-identification, but it's, it's the political and social will. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I think it comes down to, I mean, from what I'm understanding when I'm talking to professionals in the healthcare sort of data space is it's less about the um, personal identification of a patient or uh, or a condition, and it's more about the actual condition or the causes that I think that the information, where the information is valuable, it's about what can we do with that? How can we utilise that? How can we create preventatives, et cetera? Um, how can we manage that? How can we assess that and then provide more guidance, I think, in terms of serving the public better from a health and medical perspective? And I think that's probably where the misalignment is, I think, you know, when we talk about data and breach and people worried about privacy, because it really, if you, like you said, if you, if you set it up and utilize it in the right way, that you're protecting all of those kind of personal aspects of it as well. So look, one of the things I know you're really passionate about, and, and one of the, I suppose, the key aspects of your roles is about innovation and adopting new technology to, to, you know, improve the way that we do things to provide more visibility without compromising that patient experience. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those technologies that you believe can be taken advantage of and maybe a couple of ways in which organisations might be able to adopt those? 
There are hundreds of thousands of health apps on the app stores that never get used. <laughs> there are researchers that develop amazing artificial intelligence algorithms, all kinds of cool tools that could be used that never make it into practice. And so there's this huge gap between this, a great innovation and how to implement it and evaluate it in practice. And if you're developing a drug, there's a really clear process about what you need to go through to demonstrate that evidence and get it onto the market. But with digital health, there isn't a process. So we're trying to develop a pathway that walks companies or other types of innovators through those steps. And what it looks at is from the very beginning, you're asking the questions that you need to know at the end. And so you might develop this great remote monitoring tool, you know, device in it. It's monitoring some kind of, you know, physical signal from the patient and it's putting it into an app. And now you want to get patients to use that. You want to, uh, hospitals to prescribe it or, you know, clinicians to prescribe it. But as a company, you've developed this cool thing and it works in the laboratory, but you have no idea how to get it into place. On the other hand, you've got this health service who wants to be innovative. Yeah. But they see the risk of every company knocking on their door and saying, plug this into your electronic medical record. And they know that this new device or innovation is not just something you plug in. It has, it changes everything in the way that care is delivered. Yeah. It, it needs to capture data probably from the patient record. It needs to put data back in. It needs, it needs to, um, the, the clinician needs to see the data in a way that they want, you know, they don't want to see a bunch of data, new data yeah. that's coming from the patient and they don't have time for that. It challenges the funding models that are in place because if you have a GP office and and they're trying to manage a population of asthma patients, for example, or diabetes patients, and there are tools out there that they can be at home, they can be monitoring. And now the, the GP can see the panel of all their patients and they can see who's in trouble and they can bring them in or have a telehealth visit. But there's not a funding model for that. They're not paid to look at a panel of patients and there's huge risk if you give them that data and they're not looking at it. So there's question, all those questions need to be addressed up front before you even start building the tool. Yeah. Yeah. So what we built is something called the digital health validatron, and it's got three parts to it. It's got a simulation lab where we have a hospital room, a patient home and a GP office, and it has one-way mirrors and cameras um, so that you can simulate the workflows. The second part is a digital sandbox where you replicate the digital environment that you're innovation is going to be implemented into. And now you build those connections so that it can integrate and you test them out in the workflow. And the third part is the methodological expertise that the university, you know, brings of, of co-design, of implementation science, uh, health economics, to really figure out the best ways to make this innovation fit into the healthcare system. Yeah. Yeah. And how, um, I mean, clearly there's some some barriers, obviously, and, and I think we've, we've touched on there, but there's there's clearly some massive benefits. I mean, you, you've just mentioned there, you know, the ability to be able to see when a patient might be in trouble. You know, being able to have that visibility is obviously going to massively improve the, the patient care aspect of it. And that's just a very small, very relatable example. There's going to be many more complex ways in which we can support all those different kind of situations. But how does one sort of navigate that given that there's all these sort of barriers or there's this pushback? I mean, do you believe that there's there's a that there's a particular, I suppose, layer of management that needs to buy into that? Because when I talk to um, you know, 
data uh, professionals in the healthcare sector, they're very keen to adopt and utilize some of these, um, you know, tools and techniques. Where do you believe the kind of barriers are? Because they're obviously coming in somewhere, which is what's causing that trickle down effect. I think that the health services rightly want and clinicians want to have evidence that what you're bringing to them does what you say it does. Yeah. But on the innovator side, it's really hard to generate that evidence because you don't have access to the clinical environment. And so it's kind of the chicken and egg problem. Right. Yeah. And do you think, and and a lot of that must come down to funding because you don't have the funding to be able to test that in your environment. Is that where you believe is the major sort of obstacle that organizations need to be able to overcome to be able to try this technology? I actually think that's a lot smaller barrier than the the bigger barriers are first even finding, you know, a, a GP or a cardiologist or, you know, that will be the champion that will work with you. And then that that clinical champion now might want to do something in their clinic, but they work inside this larger, you know, group, whether it's a, a specialist clinic or a hospital or a GP clinic, and they have to get the buy-in of not only the leadership, the executive leadership, but also the IT people, because can you really plug this in? And is it gonna, does it have, meet the security and, you know, you have to map things to the the data that's in the EMR to there. There's all kinds of work that goes into even just testing it in a real environment. Yeah. And they just don't have time for that. They have so many things on their plate yeah. that they don't have time for that innovation. And that's why I do think the funding that you mentioned is important because you need this separate kind of arm that's really just like that, that uh, future practice that I was describing in New mm-hmm. York, like demonstrate and simulate and test out different innovative things in an, in a place that's more safe Yeah. before you decide to put it into the real setting and, and do a pilot in the real setting. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like we don't sort of have that kind of environment at the moment here in Australia. No, and most people don't. Yeah. I think individual systems who invested in this innovation space have that. Um, you know, there's a handful, but there's quite a few across across the in in um, the UK and in the US that are doing this. But it's very a health system specific, yeah. About whether they've been and the the models for the financial models, of course, drive whether we invest in innovation. Mm-hmm. And so, I think in the UK, it's a very different model, and and in the US, the there's more motivation in the US for doing innovation and because you're trying to compete as a hospital and earn money. And so you're saying we, you know, we want to be the, give the best service and the best outcomes to patients to compete. And so this is our special sauce. So yeah. I think that, you know, the financial models that underlie our, our health economics in our different countries affect what, whether how well we adopt and execute innovation. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe um, tell tell us a little bit about some of the benefits that adopting innovation and technology could could be. Like what 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 does it what could it look like for people? Yes. Well, in terms of everyone, I think now understands the benefits of an EMR and that it's worth the investment because you need to be able to collect that data and leverage that data. But but how do you really leverage the data? And there are a lot of different ways people are doing that. You can be looking for variations in care that are unwarranted. We know from a study by Jeffrey Braithwaite in Australia 
that 60% of care is the right care, 30% is just wasted and 10% is harmful to you. Yeah. And you know, that's 40% of care is not good care. And we can see a lot of that in the data uh, that, that reflects the practices. And from that, we can then start to make improvements. So that's one way we can leverage data. Yeah. Um, technology, our hospitals are packed full. The ambulances are ramping outside. We are not able to bring people in the way that we need to or get them through the hospital in, in the speed that they need to, to yeah. get in and out. And so um, we can use data to build dashboards and Royal Melbourne Hospital is doing this as are some others across Australia mm -hmm. to build what they call a digital command center to be able to have visibility and situational awareness about what's going on that will now help you make better decisions. At the point of care, we have guidelines about the right care for many treatments, but it's really getting that information to the right person in the right time in a way that's easy for them to, to act on. And yeah. so leveraging technology to nudge and remind and, and help the physician um, order the tests that they need, uh, you know, give the treatments that are indicated by the guidelines and, and pull all the information that all that data that's there, but it's not, can, it's not digestible in the amount of time that they have. So how do you really visualize it in a way and link it to the guidelines so that you support them doing the right thing? Yeah. Those are some examples. And then the last thing I would say is we need to keep people at home more. We don't need to be bringing people in to, uh, you know, for many of the things that we come in for, we can use telehealth, we can use remote monitoring, there's hospital in the home. And all those things have taken hold and are very exciting. There isn't a lot of evidence yet about when they're appropriate, when they're safe, when they are going to provide effective care and when they're not. And so we also need to be measuring. And that's an important part of innovation and the learning health system model is that you're, you know, constantly evaluating and learning from what you're doing and making improvements. Yeah, great. And what about from the patient's perspective? So, you know, uh, how could it, how could, you know, leveraging that data and technology for the healthcare system, um, how could that benefit the experience as a, as a patient? Um, or what would that mean for, for the public? Yes, patient experience is so fragmented. And we all know this, you I'd like to tell a story about a fictional person named Fiona who is uh, 13 years old and she has asthma and she goes to the emergency room with an asthma attack and she is, they get it under control and they give her a, um, a care plan and an inhaler to take home. She goes home, but she's not using it correctly. It's not working out well. She ends up hospitalized again. And this goes back and forth. And finally they say, you know, you should see a GP to help care, to help, help you manage your asthma. So she goes to the GP and the GP has no access to Fiona's data. When did you go to the emergency room? Who did you see? What medication did they give you? What yeah. care plan? None of that is available. And so they're starting all over again. And this is very frustrating for patients. They're telling the same story over and over. Um, the, the data is not shared across providers uh, and, and they don't know it. But a lot of them are, a lot of us are getting subpar care because there are guidelines out there, evidence-based guidelines about what to do but our clinicians aren't necessarily accessing them or um, following them. <laughs> and so I, I think, but I think that fragmented and that, you know, connecting care would be a, a huge improvement to patients. Definitely. Um, I mean, I think some, what you just mentioned there is, is probably something that is so common. Um, and one of the key reasons why 
sharing um, health data is so important. Uh, I mean, you've given an example of, you know, that situation, but an example of when you change, I mean, I've, I've had this before where I've changed GPs, I've moved from, and, and same with you, moved from one country to another. How do you provide that full visibility of the patient's medical history when you can't share this data? That's a massive, I mean, that, that sounds like a, a big problem, really, when it comes to being able to provide the best care. So, uh, is the industry at the moment, um, Wendy, working on policies and ways to be able to share that data? Because, I mean, I if I had to choose between whether I share the data or not, I personally would be like, I'm more than happy for the medics to have access to my data, as providing it's, you know, for the medical system um, and not shared and not doesn't go outside of that. Are we working on ways to get to that stage? I think we finally are. Yeah. Uh, with the new... Medicare task force and the new budget that's come out to fund, you know, the changes in Medicare, it's going to involve much more team-based care. Um, and it's going to require data sharing across the sector. The Australian Digital Health Agency has been funded to really work on that. The Department of Health at the Commonwealth level is putting, is going to put huge efforts into this. Um, and so this is coming now. Yeah. And my question is, what about, like you said, what about the patients? Uh, it's coming to, it's going to help the patients indirectly. But one thing that's really missing in Australia is that the the rights for patients to have access to their own data hmm. and to really have a say. Uh, well, it's really the access to their own data that I think yeah. is a big, a big gap. And and I came from another country as well. And still, uh, my husband has a lot of chronic illness hmm. that comes on top of several cancers. And so he sees a lot of health professionals. He has data from the U.S. going back 15 years that he still, even this week, brought to a, a, a GP to show her about emergency room visits and and echoes that he had and and test results that he has in his app that from you know 15 years ago that is is helping understand where he's been and his history but also removing the need for repeating certain, um, you know, procedures that you'd yeah. have to have redone. And that's something people here don't have. Yeah. We, we, we don't have that data and it's a huge loss to patients. Yeah. It, it will really impact patients to have more access to their own data. Yeah. And with everything that we're doing, how do you believe the roles are going to change over the next few years, um, you know, to, to be able to take advantage of, this new innovation and technology? How do you see the roles changing of, of both the practitioners at the front line, but also people in, in roles like yourself or within the data functions, within the informatic functions? How do you see the roles changing? Yeah, I think everyone's roles are changing now. And so if we're aiming for more participatory health, where the patient and the clinician are working together and the patient's bringing data to the table and and their knowledge of their own disease and their own experiences and the clinicians bringing their knowledge and they're working together, um, then you've got the infrastructure. We need more roles in EMR teams and data analytics and, you know, more IT roles to, to do that. But I, I see a gap in, in the roles in the health sector of we've got people who are over quality and really trying to, to build out quality. Mm -hmm. We've got people down building 
things into the EMR and, and data dashboards and things like that. But we're missing this middle role of the kind of leadership role that connects the strategies that our health services have with the operations and actions on the ground. And so I think at all levels, we need different new roles. And as we start to incorporate more artificial intelligence, um, you know, some of the things that maybe clinicians did spend their time on, they may not have to spend their time on, and they're able to spend more of that time with the patient doing the higher level reasoning. So we're just, there's so many changes coming and they're already happening. Yeah. And are you seeing from a university perspective that the the way they're teaching practitioners and, and you know, our doctors and our surgeons is changing as well, the way they're being taught? Well, I think it is going to change and different universities will go at different speeds. Um, at our university, there's going to be a big change toward training people to work in teams. And we're not the first doing that. Yeah. <laughs> there are team-based care training programs all over the world. So it's it's not new, but it's now urgent. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, and with that, I think, you know, people need to learn how to use data. They need to learn what an EMR can can give them besides just storing data. It's not just a digital file cabinet. You know, it, it can, everyone, clinicians understand how technology helps them in their personal lives, but it's not always clear how technology helps in their clinical roles. Uh, and then, and then patients are, are bringing these up. So I think, I don't think that we are even close to training the way that we should. Mm. And I think the way that we are all, uh, at least at our university, we've been trying to embed digital health training into the, prof the professional education of medical students, nurses, physios, but it's, you know, it's just a dribble. It's like these little dribbles and drabs and uh, that's not going to get us there. Yeah. I think it's really going to need to be more innovative, more at the point of care that, you know, that embedded model where like you're, you're working with in the health system with the teams mm -hmm. and their roles are changing. You're measuring how it's changing and what, you know, what their struggles are, what their needs are. And you're building kind of just in time training to help them on the ground. I just see that's where we need to go. We need to be sitting with them and delivering what they need rather than just building programs that we're trying to get people to come to the university for. Yeah, yeah. It is, and I think there's so many roles, um, not just in the medical sector, that, that haven't yet been created that I think as a result of innovation and technology are evolving and will be coming. Um, I mean, we often get told by my son's IT teacher that the roles that they'll be doing haven't even yet been created. So I think it's it's an exciting time. And I think there's such, I mean, just even from talking to you and, and, and other professionals, um, it, there's such a massive opportunity, I think, for us, particularly here in Australia, to learn from, you know, things that you've done in the, in the States that have worked really well. So, you know, you've got proven backgrounds and demonstrated experience of that that you can bring and, and hopefully it will start to change the landscape of, of what the healthcare system and how we're using the data to to drive and help make decisions and, and drive that patient care. Yeah, I agree. And I, I want to add that the patient is particularly important in this and they often get left behind and access to data is an, import, an important next step, but it's not enough. Yeah. We have to now be supporting them in understanding their data. 
And I think that's a something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to. And, and my husband, who's an informaticist and a patient, as I said, yeah. it's his passion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, are you finding that there's um, a different pace of adoption with the, you know, public, public funded um, organizations versus, I mean, the private is, is quite big here and, and in America, in the States. Um, are you finding that, you know the privately funded healthcare organizations are adopting it quicker or are you finding the public ones are you finding there's a there's a difference or are you finding they're still kind of all at the same stage I haven't had a lot of interaction here with the private system Mm -hmm. and so I I couldn't really say Mm -hmm. in the U.S. the private system of course is the biggest system but they're the VA the Veterans Administration is a huge public system that covers a lot of people across the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they've been every bit as innovative as the private system. Um, so I, I think you can be innovative yeah. in, in both. Yeah, and I, and I wanted to sort of um, highlight that because I think it's really important, like you said, for the patients, but also, um, you know, the organisations to understand that you don't need to be limited um, or feel like you're limited because of whether you're in the public system or whether you're in the private system. I think there's an opportunity for everyone. And I usually ask this question sort of, you know, just after I've introduced the guests, but what do you find most fascinating after all these years um, when it comes to data across the industry that you're in, Wendy? Uh, well, being a you know, natural language processing researcher, it's very fascinating to see how people communicate using the EMR mm-hmm. and the types of notes that they write. Uh, and it's fun to include clinicians in developing algorithms to extract information out of those notes. And they're always just shocked at how poorly formed, unclear, repetitive, gappy, just like they're just, it's very poor, um, the communication there. And and so I I think a really important thing that I do when I teach this topic of informatics and digital health is to let people look at real clinical data because we have these visions about the powerful things we can do with the data. And computer scientists will come in with these great algorithms they want to apply. And the data is often just won't get you there. Um, we, we teach a class called Applied Learning Health Systems. And we do a case study and a scenario of trying to develop uh, a digital intervention for diabetes patients. And we start out by let's learn from the data. And so we have real data. And we're trying to build a predictive tool to identify which of our patients are going to the hospital and, you know, what predicts them going to the hospital. But all the things that you would hope would predict it, that you clinically would say, you know, their blood sugar levels, things like just they aren't even in the data. And so it's just shocking to people. And then there's all these things that just don't they they don't exist or they're they're messy and, you know, they can't be true. So it's you got to get in the data and then you have to figure out use what's there because it's still useful, but it's not, it's so far from magic. It's bias. It represents bias processes. Um, the way that, you know, it, it's just a mess. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the inputting and the information that's going into these systems is where there needs to be a big improvement. And, and you know, I couldn't agree. I mean, you, you could obviously see me, see me nodding, uh, Wendy, but when I go to the GP, I can see them. They're typing, they're thinking of what to write. You know, what, how do I explain what I'm doing? And then, as you said, how, how does the model interpret that, you know, if it's not done? And so there probably needs to be some education around 
how things should be entered in the first place or or some sort of idea or some guidelines around that to be able to capture that data um, better. So I think there's there's so many opportunities there. What would you say to, um, I suppose, the individuals that are entering, uh, you know, this profession at the moment now, you know, uh, data professionals, informatic professionals, um, what would your advice be to them in terms of the types of roles and opportunities that might be available for individuals who are interested in entering this industry as a professional in that space? My advice would be that we need all kinds of skills and expertise. You don't have to be a technical person. You don't have to be a clinical person. You know, I come from linguistics. My son's in the same field and he works at the VA in the U.S. and and he he has a bachelor's degree in music (laughs) and piano. Uh, We need statisticians. We need sociologists, we need psychologists, we need economists, like all of those things are important to making this work. And so if you find the problems that are driving the healthcare system interesting, and you feel like you want to have a dip, you know, make a difference in people's lives, you have some kind of skill that's needed. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And, and I think that's um, certainly um, consistent across some of the leaders that I'm talking to, that you can come from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, it's mo- it's just more about how you're going to apply that and how you can drive some of those changes. So thank you so much for that. Look, Wendy, it's been really good. I think you've, you've definitely opened my mind up to things I didn't didn't know about. So I'm sure the listeners will will probably feel the same. Um, look, I ask all my guests as well, because often when um, I do post the podcast, um, people might want to reach out, connect with you. Um, are you happy for them to connect with you on LinkedIn? Um, and if they had any questions about what we've talked about, are you happy for them to reach out to you? That'd be, that would be great. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Wendy. I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah, thank you. 